Welcome to the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I'm your co-host, Alex Merkel. And I'm Josh Randles. And this is where evidence-based medicine meets unconventional warfare. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speaker's own, and nothing contained herein is to be considered the official opinion of the Journal of Special Operations Medicine or the U.S. government, including the Defense Health Agency, Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Navy, or Air Force. Hi, everyone. This is Michelle Landers, founding publisher of the JSOM. I'd like to thank you for joining the JSOM's 20th anniversary interview series. We are excited to bring together a host of experts, all leaders in the soft medical community. In these interviews, we will be discussing the ever-evolving methods of treating battlefield trauma and injury, and how those methods have changed over the 20 years since the JSOM's inception. I hope you'll find these talks as informative as we do. All right, well, welcome back. We've got yet another outstanding guest here. Uh, looking forward to chatting today with uh, Master Sergeant Sean Anderson. And uh, would you be interested in telling us where we are today? Absolutely. So we're here in beautiful San Antonio, Texas, at the Combined In-Route Combat Casualty Care and Surgical Combat Casualty Care Committee meetings. Uh, I'm a member of the In-Route Combat Casualty Care as well as the uh, Tactical Combat Casualty Care Committees. Fantastic. Heard a lot of really great topics from some outstanding speakers. And getting right into it, why don't you tell us a little bit about where your background in soft medicine is and where you are today for us? Absolutely. So, uh, as you stated, I'm a pararescueman. I cross-trained uh, from Intel in 2007, went through the pipeline, graduated in 2009, got my beret and went to my first team. And... Uh, started working the Pedro mission out of Nellis Air Force Base there. So got, that was my experience as a brand new PJ, uh, a lot of, lot of hands-on medicine, so it was, it was great for a new uh, medic to get in there and, and learn. From there, I PCS to Mildenhaw, that's where I got some special tactics experience at the 321st Special Tactics Squadron, so I did three years there. During that time, I had opportunity to embed with the Rangers as well as the CRIF out of Stuttgart, Germany, and a little bit with the uh, Unit 2 SEAL team out there did some work with them, just training uh, with those guys. So uh, just a lot of really good opportunities there. Also worked with the, you know combat controllers doing airfield surveys and everything all throughout Northern Africa. So uh, a lot of really good experiences in that three years. And then uh, came back to the States, went to a rescue squadron in Valdosta, Georgia, Moody Air Force Base there, and uh, took over a team and ran a team there. We deployed uh, in support of Operation Inherent Resolve, stood up the base out there just on the border of Turkey in support of the operations going on there in Syria. Came back, and a little bit a year later, I got positioned in Langley Air Force Base to take over as the pararescue medical program manager. And here we are today. <laughs> Holy smokes. And so uh, for those folks who are outside of your career field, it was really fun to chat with you offline beforehand. But uh, can you tell us about some of the things that you're helping Colonel Dorsch implement up there at the Pentagon? Yeah, so with the move, so Air Force Special Warfare has recently stood up um, under A3S. So we have a directorate of uh, guys up there that are doing some work to help push that. And uh, Air Force Special Warfare really is is taking on the mission of global access, precision strike, and recovery. So, you know, we kind of fall in that, and with the uh, PJs across Air Combat Command and 
Air Force Special Operations Command were, were working together to meet the, the needs of those mission sets. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I think um, we all know about the many, many changes that have happened in soft medicine over the past 20 years, but I think we're excited today to talk particularly about the PJ mission set and what's changed in your ability to perform analgesia in your specific setting. So getting into that topic, maybe you could help our listeners identify where the idea to change your practice came from. Was this a civilian idea or a military practice that really drove this decision? So I believe it was is one of the docs on the Teachable Seek uh, Committee, and I don't want to misquote who it was, but I feel like John Holcomb was absolutely involved, and probably Dr. Gandhi. There was a few others that were involved, and, and I know, uh, I believe at the time, Dr. Gandhi was doing a lot of support with pararescue, and, and I think it was around the 2010 time frame where we started transitioning away from morphine as our primary analgesic into ketamine. And uh, I remember getting into theater as that young PJ spring of, of 2011 and, and being given ketamine and saying, what, what is this? Why am I giving people horse tranquilizer? This is, this is insane, you know, and it, it had been popularly known as a the date rape drug. You know, there's all sorts of other, like negative connotations with thing, this thing. And we didn't really... We didn't really understand it, but what we did realize is that its disassociative effect was very impressive in a traumatic you know, injury, uh, combined with the fact that it, it did not tank the blood pressure. So we were finding a lot of, of really good success with it, and so that started to become our primary analgesic, and we got approval through our med direction to use that instead of morphine and, and continue to have pretty pretty good success. There were some lessons learned. You know, we started identifying some of the byproducts of ketamine. You know, you rapid induce it. We saw actually witnessed some of the transient apnea uh, that comes along if you push it too fast. Um, we did see some reemergence issues with guys that were dosed too light or, or otherwise incorrectly. You know, and then we saw everything too, that catatonic state. We saw guys chasing butterflies in the back of the helicopter, you know. So it was, it was kind of a, a very interesting a way to see the effects of this medication and then the more we've learned over the last few years to understand like why certain things were happening the way that they did and we've really been able to start to dial that down and, and see how effective it can be when used appropriately. That's fantastic and what do you think was the trigger for migrating over to um, either non-opioid analgesia or just using other agents? We had just talked before about why we really like to get away from morphine for all the reasons there, but was there any specific trigger that prompted the decision to move off of that 100-year-old medicine? Well, I, beyond its, its antiquated existence, I think the, you know, <laughs> as technology, and, and, uh, technology adapts and, and the way that we're doing things you know, adapts, we find better ways to do things. You know, and, and at the, the end of the day, we wanted to, to maintain a normotensive casualty mm. and make them comfortable. So to get that, we couldn't do it with, with morphine. We had to pick one or the other, and it seemed that we were, were constantly you know, chasing our tails to keep casualties both comfortable and stable, and, and we couldn't really do it with the morphine. Um, when we changed to ketamine, we found that we could. In, in some cases, the blood pressure went up without any kind of fluid management. You know, and fluid resuscitation is a, is a new topic that we don't really have to get into now, but we were finding we were able to stabilize the patients without turning their blood into Kool-Aid. So I think it was, uh, <laughs> it just made sense to transition. Absolutely. 
And it's so nice that we've recently learned that it won't make people's uh, head explode with head injuries or their eyeballs explode yes. either. So it's, it's even safer than we initially thought. And as far as using ketamine in the pre-hospital environment for analgesia, who do you think within the soft medical community is the current audience? Is it limited just to your PJ community? I don't think so. Um, this is this has started to grow wider. I know that the Rangers are becoming pretty confident with it. 18 Deltas are, are familiar with it. Um, you know, as far as the soft community, I, I think everyone is accepting that transition now. I would like to see it beyond the soft community, actually. I believe it, it definitely has a place, especially in trauma medicine. Yeah, absolutely. And um, for those of us who also have a hat in the civilian practice environment, we're even seeing it bleeding over into that whole different conversation about our civilian medical directors and what dose they think is appropriate. We've got a few folks who really like to give about 400 milligrams uh, pre-hospital, and then the patient evaluation in the recess bay can be a little challenging. Um, and then how about for our last question here, let's end with probably one of the most important discussions that we really have at these committees, which is how do we quantify the benefit to the patient? So I think this is a, an interesting one for these discussions, but do you know how or have you got any ideas about how do we quantify the benefit of using, for example, ketamine for our pre-hospital analgesia for our patient population? That's, that is a great question, and that's something that a lot of times is, is way over my head. You know, I get to come to these meetings and see some, some massive brains and hear people talk, <laughs> and it, uh, it is truly humbling. But I think, you know, as we, as we start improving our data registries, we start getting this information, we're able to truly look back over the last 10 to 20 years and, and see what has been effective and what has not. Um, and ketamine is one of those things that we just haven't, seen anyone get killed by ketamine. We haven't seen any major uh, side effects from this drug, but we have seen people be, be able to utilize it in things like RSI or just analgesia or just the disassociative effects. So we're able to use it for so many different things, and, and we have case study after case study after case study that has shown its effectiveness. And I think as we continue to build this registry with the joint trauma system and gather that data. We're just going to have more and more quantifiable information to show that it works. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'd like to thank you so much for your time. I know before we started recording, we talked about some of the different topics that we could discuss. So um, I think the list is pretty much unending, but any particular topics that you're looking forward to in the future that might be changing in your community? Absolutely. So, you know, I did mention the documentation and there's there's been over the last, you know, 10 to 20 years specifically, there's a lot of things that have happened that have that have not been captured appropriately. And so that was something that we we as a community said we we really want to do a better job at. And with that, we started working with the Air Force Research Laboratory, AFRL, and we developed uh, technology known as BatDoc. It's becoming pretty widely known now. And the, the origination of that was just a better way to capture our documentation and our data points. Over the last few years, we've really started developing that, and we will most likely be implementing it in the very near future. And the idea is not to give the medic something more to do on target because we all know that's not going to happen. You know, no one's really pulling their phone out of the POI and, and trying to enter in information into this electronic casualty card. But every problem set that we've given the engineers for this that said, hey, that, that's harder, not easier, they have gone back and they found a way to correct it. So we're really trying to make it 
less work for the medic to do the right thing to the point where we have a sensor on the casualty it's bluetooth connected and so all of the vitals are automatically populated in there so you never have to punch them in you don't have to hand jam them in so uh, it automatically automatically populates them creates our record um, there's several other things that we can do to easily input medications and treatments and other things like that we'd really like to have a speech to text capability to where i can just say my notes and it puts it in there prints it out and then the the really cool piece about it is we want it, it's going to be data mineable and we're trying to work with the joint trauma system to where this thing can connect to the network and so it doesn't matter like all the information that you put in will auto populate either a 1380 or a DA 4700 which is the casualty evacuation form and it will send those forms to the people that need to see them so we're trying to work that into the software algorithms as well so it's not coming back from the mission and having to do multiple reports and then remember who to send them to and all that we're trying to automate a lot of that process so it's just one less thing for the medic to be concerned about so that's it's kind of where we're going to improve our registry capability our databasing or data mining capability to help with process improvement as well as get that information into the patient's record as well so it's going to kind of be a two-fold process so we think that's going to just going to help us uh, grow faster at a more efficient rate that's so fantastic. It's finally using technology to make the medic's life on the ground easier. And I guess we'll probably end with the famous quote from ER doc, Dr. Mel Herbert, who likes to remind us all that what you do matters. Uh, please remember that when you're on the X. And I think this is a really good tie-in that what you do for documentation matters so much, not only for the continuity of patient care, but more importantly for your casualty that gets injured next week, next month, or next year that is going to benefit from the technology that we can use by researching that retrospective data to find ways that we can improve patient care. So please, for the sanity of Colonel uh, Jen Gurney and Colonel Stacy Shackelford, fill out your TC3 cards and get those not only to the next role of care, but to the uh, JTS so that we can make what you do more relevant, more timely, and more beneficial to the patients you help serve. Thanks so much. This is Sophia Rodriguez, Director of Marketing and Social Media Communications for the JSOM. I want to encourage our listeners to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at JSOM Online, and to sign up to receive our free e-newsletter on our website at jsomonline.org. We love hearing from our subscribers and followers and welcome your feedback and suggestions. This is Colonel Shackelford from the Joint Trauma System reminding you to submit your DD-1380 and TC-3 AAR to JTS after the mission.